the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, a disturbing abortion bill signed in Colorado. And then I have a parenting question for Aubrey. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Wednesday afternoon. It's hump day, Aubrey. Hump day. How are what? you? I don't know. I'm I'm a little, I feel like it's not Wednesday. Like <laughs> I'm a little know. thrown off. I think the whole spring break thing and now everything's supposedly just back in our rhythm and the fact that it's Wednesday. I don't know. I'm lost about how I am, but I'm glad you're back still, Brian. Thank day you. number three of you being back it's good to have you. Thank you. I think what is also throwing you is that it's supposed to be warm and beautiful outside, and it just continues to rain and be it forty does. degrees. So. I had to lit. I had to drive. My- this is how hard life is right now. I had to drive myself to the store to buy allergy meds because that's oh, it's I that mean, time of year. It's that time of year. So that might be part of it. All of my allergy meds are just making me out of it this evening. Yep. But anyway, yep. I, I'm Our, glad to be here with you, but Brian. We are here. We are inside. We are here. We are glad that all of you are with us today. Uh, Aubrey, it's been a while since uh, we've talked about abortion. There, there's. It feels like as we've talked about in the past, um, everything in our culture is kind of polarizing. They're either yeah. going really progressive and liberal or really conservative. And it depends on the state that you live in. For instance, um, there was a uh, very restrictive abortion law that just passed. I believe it might have been in your state of Oklahoma or Missouri yesterday. It was one of those two. I think it was uh, Oklahoma, actually. I think it was Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. You think about Texas and all of these things, some very restrictive abortion laws. And everyone's mm-hmm. kind of keeping their eye on the Supreme Court, Court for federal things. Right. Other states ours included, are trying to loosen the reins, right? They're trying to push abortion forward in ways that just a decade ago would have been unfathomable, right? Right, Like, I think it was Bill Clinton when he was running for president, he talked about his desire for abortions to be as rare as possible. So it was this idea that we want to have pro-choice so that we can have safe abortions so that they're as rare as possible. That is not the mantra of Mm -hmm. the pro-choice crowd right now. Mm -hmm. It is not rare. It is celebrated. And so in many ways, these have gone in different directions. And with that in mind, I want to tell you about, uh, man, when I read this, this, this governor, the governor of Colorado, he signed a bill declaring the unborn child, quote, does not have independent rights. Mm. So let me read some of this for you. Governor Jared Polis of Colorado signed a bill into law on Monday that pro-lifers say legalizes abortion up to the moment of birth by declaring that the unborn child does not have independent rights in the state. Mm. The new law, dubbed the Reproductive Health Equity Act by supporters, calls abortion a, quote, fundamental right and says government shall not deny, restrict, interfere with 
or discriminate against an individual's decisions to have an abortion. The new law goes on to say a fertilized egg, embryo, or fetus does not have independent or derivative rights under the laws of this state. And he said later that the bill codifies existing protections in statute. So they're trying Mm -hmm. to get ahead of what might come for the federal government. And I think, Aubrey, what stands out for a lot of us who feel very strongly about this issue, who want to see baby saved, is that line that all the way up, I mean, he said embryo, but then he said the law says fetuses do not have any independent rights. And what people are pointing out is this may not be the purpose of the law, but what people are pointing out is if you are going by the letter of the law, that means you can have an abortion right up until the moment of birth, that you can abort a baby at nine months at whatever it is you want because until a baby's born it's a fetus and that fetus does not have any rights in the state of colorado you read that aubrey that's that's chilling it's chilling to read that and this reminds us as to why this conversation must be so important for us as christians and as the church brian it's it's chilling is the right word. Like I, mm-hmm. like if, if our listeners could see me, I think my eyes are wide open and my mm-hmm. jaw is on the floor because I, okay, I am pro-life all the way. Okay. So let's just say that. I can understand why those who are not, I, I don't agree. I think they're wrong, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I can understand why those who are not pro-life or they're pro-choice feel like it's okay to abort an embryo. Okay, I, again, I disagree. You don't, you're not saying you agree, but you're saying it, I can, you understand the I argument. I understand. But when we're talking fetuses, mm-hmm. I mean, this is outrageous. Like, it's – it's, and part of it is I'm a mom. I've carried three babies in my womb. You've felt them kick. You've heard their heartbeat. Mm-hmm. You've um, decorated your baby's room. You've come up with names. Like, this is at – this – it's a human being, uh, untestable, and now we're just saying like murders, okay? And I, I, I'm, I'm in shock. Like I feel like I can't yeah. even like put words to how extreme this is. And I understand that may not be the heart of what the you know the legalized action is intended, but at the end of the day, the fact that it would be legalized, yeah, up to the point of birth is heinous to me yes evil it's evil to me it's evil uh Um, and i think brian there's this way that we're we're perceiving our kids in the states right now from like the from this like uh Mm -hmm. before birth all the way even to our we're talking about you know our education and and filling in our kids on like sexual education and gender education all of this i just feel like we are completely mistreating and abusing the most vulnerable in our society That's right well now. And for people, Christians and non-Christians, Republicans and Democrats, who are supposed to be for the vulnerable, I do not understand how this is justifiable. I mean, before God, before our community, before each other, I don't understand how this is justifiable. That's uh, well put. I, uh, one of the reporters who is reporting this also said that besides an all-out war against children in utero, because it defines abortion as a right, the law could be used to attempt to force medical professionals to commit or participate in abortions. Hmm. There are zero conscience protections in the law. So mm. the medical professionals as well. Aubrey, let me step back here for a second. Okay. There might be people who are listening who go, 
I don't think babies, I don't think fetuses have rights. I don't think embryos have rights. Yeah, babies do. But, but when we're talking Mm. about rights, that feels a bit much. I, again, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate. You and I do not agree with that line of thinking. Right. Uh, how would you answer that question? Why do we so passionately say, no, no, fetuses have rights? Here's okay. I, I almost want to even step back from that, Brian, because I think what does get missed in this conversation is um, women who, okay, one, women who have had abortions, if you feel any sense of guilt or shame for that, Brian and I want you to know that, like, in Christ, you are forgiven. And so there's sure. no shame for you, there's no condemnation for you. Sometimes I think we forget that in this conversation. But if there's a woman out there who is abortion minded because she's struggling, she can't provide for her child, dad's not around, um, or maybe it's a, this thought of a pregnancy is going to destroy her, you know, her entire life. Like she doesn't mm-hmm. understand. Mm-hmm. I do think we need to have more compassion and empathy for women in these situations, period, period, period. Okay. That said, under that umbrella, to your question, I think why we say the baby have rights is just our foundational theological belief that every human being was made in the image of God. And we also believe something that is a wild thing to believe, but we believe the words of Psalm 139, that before we were in our mother's wombs, God already knew us, that God chose and intended to bring us to life and that life begins at conception. Like we just wholeheartedly as Christians believe that. That's biblical, that's theological, and Christian history, Christian tradition has always been about protecting infants, children, orphans, etc. And so when we're talking about the rights of those, we're talking about the rights of those who can't defend themselves. And again, this is where I kind of get my mind blown because I feel like there are parties politically, including the Democratic Party, that says they're for the vulnerable. We Mm. need to care for the oppressed and the poor. We need to do more systematically or systemically to make change for those who can't speak for themselves. But when it comes to this issue, there's total hypocrisy because this is the most vulnerable, literally cannot speak for themselves, and yet they do have a right to live and survive and thrive. And again, like... This is where it gets really hard. Children are a blessing. Children do take sacrifice. It does require sacrifice, but it is such a good gift to bring kids into this world. Yeah, that's really well put. I think uh, I'll end it this way, too. People have always said, well, then you pro-life people, you need to stand in the gap. And churches are standing in that's the gap. That's right. Adopting that's right. We do. The, the rates of adoption, mm-hmm. the rates of pregnancy centers, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I'd encourage people out there, continue to go, how can I be part of the solution? Okay, adoption or pre- helping out at a crisis pregnancy center or whatever else. How can I continue to be part? And we, this is something churches, uh, this is a hill to die on and yeah. something that we believe need to be pointed point of prayer and point of action. I want to ask Aubrey a parenting question, particularly in this culture that we are living in. But before we do that, I want to tell you about something going on here at the station, because in these uncertain times, it can be hard to live with certainty. In his book, Living with Confidence in a Chaotic World, Dr. David Jeremiah provides a biblical roadmap to living in certainty. During the month of April, you can enter to win a copy of this book along with unshakable confidence cards. These are 10 challenges to remind us to find confidence in our Heavenly Father and stay focused on Him. And one grand prize winner will win a signed leather-bound David Jeremiah study Bible. 
Everyone who enters will receive the April issue of Turning Points Devotional Magazine and an instant ebook download of the seven signs of Easter, evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's what you do. Enter today at 1160hope.com slash confidence and make sure to listen to Turning Point with David Jeremiah weekday mornings at 930 right here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. I enjoy David Jeremiah. So Yeah, that's, uh, I that's would such in- an exciting uh uh, like entry might as well go go for it i would encourage people to do that and i also look forward to someday purchasing the aubrey sampson study bible Ooh, just sometime no i don't i don't think so that feels a little too no aspire the, aspire the, the, the you jesus study bible only <laughs> uh, aspire. all right aubrey i i tease this was saying i have a parenting question so it, this goes back to some stuff you and i talked about yesterday uh it, it is sometimes when i tell you i have a parenting question it's like funny stuff or this yeah, this is yeah. like this is like deep end of the pool parenting oh no right now. oh no here okay? we go Go. I don't know if I'm uh, ready. And it's not even particularly about my children, but it, it's all of our kids. And it is uh, – but it, it's, it comes from a conversation I had with my daughter yesterday. Uh, I I said to her – I was on Instagram. I was playing around. And, you know, every now and then I just feel really old. And I said to my daughter, okay, I want you to explain to me all the variations of pronouns. Okay, yeah. And I just started getting confused. So it was like, obviously, I understand some of the basic ones, but the one we started discussing, somebody had put he, they, and I was like, Mm -hmm. I don't understand. Help me understand this. Mm -hmm. And so she was talking and it it spurred a really good conversation. And what we be really begin to realize, and you and I have talked about this before, is that the way that our children have been uh, taught the way that our children have been immersed in social media, mm-hmm. uh, the things they see on TV. Like mm-hmm. Carrie and I were just talking the other day, like there's very few shows or com- like blocks of time where we sit down with our kids where there's not a commercial with two men or yeah. a commercial here. Yeah. And so uh, here's my ultimate question for you, Aubrey. And this is why I said it's deep end of the pool stuff. You've got teenagers. I've got teenagers. Yeah. We both have preteens. Yeah. Uh, they think differently than we do. Totally. My kids all believe our kids, your kids, my kids all believe in Jesus. Like this yep. is not a crisis of faith. Yep. Yep. They just talk about these things differently than we do. And yep. certainly our parents did. And uh, what's your uh, what's your strategy? What's your posture uh-huh. towards your kids? I'm not even asking you what exactly do you like? Don't do that. Like, but just yeah. how do you even have this conversation? <laughs> how is this kind of stuff that our kids are learning and immersed in? Because we said this yesterday, right? Things feel like they're moving at a hundred miles yeah. an hour. Yeah. Things that were even not, not talked about a year ago are now openly talked about and things are really moving forward particularly around issues of sexuality yeah Um, and sexual identity yeah transgenderism lgbtq all of these things and so i what i want to ask you is not what do you think what do you i don't want to want i want to know how you're talking to your kids right what what can people out there right now with kids who feel really lost in what to do how do we even keep those lines of communication open yeah, this is something we have just started talking with our kids about. And part of it is we have a we have a 20 something uh children's pastor at renewal and she's very sensitive and empathic towards the LGBTQ transgender th- this conversation. Mm-hmm. And so half the time Kevin and I are like 
educate us help us because part of it is like like you just said like we literally don't know like i'm gonna be honest like this is totally different than when you and i were growing up this is different than a couple years ago at when least we were here, pastoring at least it's here completely in West chicago yeah th- there may have been uh some like i what people would call struggles with their homosexual feelings there was not this sense of like i can't identify as a boy or a girl like people mm-hmm. just weren't saying that and it did, i i don't know that that means it wasn't happening but it was not like sort of an option on a table of options and right now it's an option on a table of options so we've just begun to have this conversation with our kids in fact we were talking about the dinner table the other day like you know, do any of your friends use different pronouns than uh, she or he? And they were like, well, yeah, there's some kids at our schools that want to be called they or there's a boy that says um, he's a sh- she's a she, you know, th- those kinds yep. of things. Yep. And so th- but then my kids, I mean, this is the problem with sort of their age and their boyness is they're like, yeah, our pronouns are is and and was our pronouns are <laughs> cool and awesome. Like, so they're not boys do handle these differently. Yeah, yeah. So they're not totally taking it as seriously as maybe Kevin and I want them to be. But we what we kind of say in the and honestly, it's like a two minute conversation. Then they Understood. start dying of laughter. We have said, look. We are here for you guys. If this is a struggle for you, if this is something you're wondering about or feeling within yourself, mom and dad love you. We're here for you. We want to talk to you. Simultaneously, we believe that God created you as boys. Like when you were mm-hmm. born, and this is where, you know, they're boys. So it gets, I don't Understood. I can't even, gets inappropriate. We start talking about body parts, but like, no, <laughs> like God intentionally made you a boy and being a boy is good. And just like God intentionally made mom a uh, girl when she was born, that's good. Like it's good to be a boy. It's good. And so we try to honor like, the the genders or the sexual identities that we believe the gender identities that god has given them i don't think we know what their sexual where they identify sexually and then we're praying for them constantly like i'm just Mm. praying that they can honor god with their sexuality and their gender period that's what kevin's praying honor god with their sexuality and their gender period but i'm telling you brian it feels so complicated to me and i don't want to stray far from biblical norms and and i don't want this is where this is where it feels complicated to me i never want the culture a culture who is really not in submission to the lord jesus christ a culture that is in submission to sex gods all the time let's be honest Mm -hmm. i don't want that culture to be the thing that divides defines my kids identity or sexuality it's god period so we're going to constantly bring them back to submission to the lordship of jesus christ and their identity and in their um and in their sexuality, at the same time, I know this conversation isn't going away. And I don't want to also be parents who just cover their ears and go, la, 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 this isn't mm-hmm. happening. In some sense, I think my kids have to teach us, like, why is this happening? What is this about? What's the longing underneath this? So yeah. that we can begin to meet that longing with biblical truth and not just go, oh, that's dumb. Brush it aside. Like, we need right. to know the real issue here. So anyway, I... I I am I, I feel complicated about it, Brian. I think that's great, I, and I think that's the, that's the answer, right? Like the yeah. answer is that this is not easy, and anyone who wants to put their head in the sand like you did, or just lecture our kids, like if you saw lecture kids, that's not the messages they're here. Like you, in some ways, you want to walk this this razor's edge right now that feels so. Like my razor's edge of I want to hold to biblical truth, yeah. and I want to tell my kids. 
uh, what the Bible talks about sexuality yeah. and what we believe. And, yeah. this, that, and at the same time, I want my kids to know that I love them and yeah. I want them to love their neighbor. Like I That's want them it. to know what it means to be empathetic to, right. their, to their classmates, right. to their good friends uh, and whatever else. And, and I, like you said, this feels like this has caught – this has gone to 100 miles an hour in the last six months. Yeah, totally. Uh, and I don't want my kids to see me as somebody just up there railing all the time, mm-hmm. condemning. But at the same time, I don't want to be like, hey, um, God mm-hmm. doesn't care. Does mm-hmm. it matter? Like, it does matter. Yeah. And so I, I think your word there of saying it's complicated is true. And anyone who claims otherwise – I think you're going to have problems with your kids for one, and that's not what they're hearing. And so I Can think I say you're... one more thing too, Please Brian. Do. I, so yeah. we have a, we have a friend whose daughter's uh, going through this transition. The daughter mm-hmm. has said her name is now a boy's name. Her pronouns are he they, and um, so they so they'll honor that. They call her by the boy's name, and it, you know, depending on who they're with, they'll they'll say daughter or son or what have you. But what she has said is because the church has taken such a silent stance on this in a in order not to offend and in order mm. to feel welcoming to everyone the only voice my daughter is hearing is cultures and ours and wow. so she's like she's not getting any biblical truth on this from the church and that to me was one of the most eye-opening statements i'd ever heard because i think we have probably at renewal church said no everyone's welcome we're not going to talk like we're not going to talk about those things because you don't want anyone to come and feel like they're not welcome. But I wonder if in not speaking out, we're allowing culture's message to be the only and loudest message that our people are hearing. That's convicting over all sorts of issues. But over this one primarily right now, are our kids hearing it or do our congregants, do they yeah. know how to think this yeah. through yeah. or what to even say? I, I, that's that's convicting. That is convicting because yeah. my bent would always be all are welcome. Yes. we. Uh, do you really want to know what I believe? I'll tell you. Why don't we meet together? Mm-hmm. Uh, not a lot from the pulpit, all mm-hmm. of this stuff. And so I don't. Here's what I would say to people out there, too. This isn't going away. Yeah. This is picking yeah. up steam and uh, we have to know as the church and as parents uh, yeah. and as friends and yeah. how do we talk about this and how do we love our kids through it? Well, uh, thank you for helping me with the parenting question. That's that's always good. I don't know if I helped. Uh, I just said it's complicated like you did. <laughs> find us online at 1160hope.com, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, where we put up the social media water cooler this week. We have a good one this week, Brian. Uh, See, again, it's when it goes on your personal account yep. where it goes crazy. Yep. Last I saw, there were like 60 replies to yes. here was the question. And we're going to discuss this on tomorrow's show. Uh, here was the question. Uh, tell us about a time where you randomly ran into somebody really famous. So I love not it. like, not like I went to a place where they were signing autographs, but like I was getting on an elevator yeah. and look who was there. It yeah. was. Yeah. The Dalai Lama. I was walking you know? down the street and walked past Garth Brooks or whatever. So I will wait. I will save this for tomorrow. But I have a story tomorrow in which I almost hit with my car a huge late seventies TV character. I cannot wait. <laughs> in, in cannot wa- wait to hear that story. In the middle amazing. of Washington D.C. Yes, as I can see the White House, I <laughs> almost hit a a a nineteen seventies television. Almost hit him. Almost hit a nineteen seventies television star, and it turned out to be hilarious. I cannot so, wait to hear this tomorrow. 
tomorrow. Going to share that uh, tomorrow. Okay, Aubrey, we were just talking about parenting and how complicated parenting is. And also earlier in the week, we brought up the uh, the new study that was really difficult to talk about, that 40% mm. of adolescents right now said that they feel hopeless, that yes, they feel so empty sad. and hopeless. And that's scary yeah, because – you and I have kids this age. Like, mm-hmm. what do we do with that? How do we process it? Right. And as he often does, our friend David French over at the French Press wrote about this. And he basically said, uh, he, he surmised, he asked the question, are, are our kids taking their cues from us? Wow, interesting. So let me read to you one of his, but it's a long article. You can find it at the French Press, but here was part of it. He said, Uh, I also wonder about something else. Are kids taking emotional cues from their parents? Are we facing the future with faith and hope or with animosity and anxiety? Mm. He then goes on to quote British theologian Andrew Wilson upon visiting in America. It says he sees pain. He says, one of the things that has struck me in my last two U.S. visits has been how very painful the culture wars have become for many, many people. Mm. Online, you see combatants appearing to enjoy the fight or even monetize it. But on the ground, Mm. you see hurt, confusion and fatigue. And so, Mm -hmm. Aubrey, I want to go there because we keep saying, uh, what's wrong with our kids? What's wrong with our kids? What's wrong with our kids? And David French says, might the issue be their parents? Mm. And so, yes, we do know that a lot of this has to do with high divorce rates, with COVID, with all of this other stuff. Yeah. Uh, but French is pointing out, might our kids be taking their cues from their parents who yeah. are stressed out, who yeah. are angry, who aren't showing faith and hope, mm. who aren't. And they're going, mm. uh, A, that's how you're supposed to act. Mm. But B, just seeing my parents be like that makes me anxious. It yeah. makes me this. And yeah. that in reality, the answer to this question might be more lying in the parents than it is in the kids. A, have you ever thought about that? And B, what do you think about it? No, I haven't thought about that, but it's one of those, you know how profound things are often the most simple? It's like one of those profound moments where you're like, oh yeah, duh, it probably is us, right? right? It's us doing, I mean, I know it's not only us, but certainly our kids are picking up on our anxiety, our depression, our doubt, our fear, especially over the past couple of years, some of the conversations we've had around the dinner table that have been tense or have felt tense or the way we're talking about other people. And to to assume that isn't taking a toll on the next generation is, frankly, a terrible assumption. And so yeah. I'm so glad David French is pointing this out because now I'm navigating like, okay, when have I said this or acted this way? Or has that rubbed off on my kids? Have I noticed that that's rubbed off on my kids? Mm -hmm. I mean, it makes sense too, because anybody you're around a lot, um, especially someone you're close to and they feel anxious or worried, you may not carry that same level of anxiety, but your emotions do rise. Like the temperature rises, even if it's in response to like, I wish they weren't so anxious all the time. Like Mm -hmm. even that can cause you. And so of course kids are sort of being formed and they're always responding or going on the defense or doing like caretaking behaviors to make their parents okay, which I hate that. I hate that we put our kids in that uh, position sometimes, but that is the reality. And I think that goes to show how influential parents mm. are over their kids. And that can be used for good or for evil. Like David French says in this article, he had a very joyful childhood. That's right. His parents were intentional about that. But then he also says, if I felt my parents were anxious, I became more anxious. If they were at peace, mm-hmm. I was very calm. So I think we can't, 
we can't neglect the role we have as parents and the mood that we set in our homes. That's right. And he brings up another point. You ready to get more convicted? Uh-oh. He says a change in parenting styles now has comp- has compounded this problem, the whole idea of helicopter parenting, mm. the whole idea of we are so involved in our kids' lives. He says mm. it's hard to overemphasize how contrary this pressure and continuous monitoring was to my childhood experience. My parents were strict, but they weren't fearful. I enjoyed an immense amount of autonomy. Even as a young kid, I'd walk out of my house in the morning, stay out with friends uh, with rules about how far I yeah. could wander, yeah. return for dinner, then strike out again until curfew. Mm. Mm-hmm. That is not typical childhood experience That's today. so true. And what do kids do when they're, quote, safely at home or safely mm. in the world of carefully monitored student and youth activities? They turn to their phone, which turns out to not be safe at all. Like, oh, that's getting really convicting. French is going, listen, in our childhoods, yeah. you could just be gone for a while. It's and, true. You, know, you, you think back to the 50s and 60s, what, you, what we watched in the Wonder Years, right? Mm-hmm. Like they were just out and about. But even in the 80s, you and I, yeah, you know, we'd go places. We'd walk totally. here. Wander uh, around buddy, the neighborhood with friends. Yep. My buddies and I'd be up at the park playing baseball yep. for hours yep. and this and that. And now our kids have such a controlled mm. – uh, first of all, it's very uh, over-programmed, right? Yep. Over um, – yeah, programmed. But also – I feel it in myself. I don't yeah. let my kids, or at least when they were younger, they right. just wander the streets. No, no, There's no, all no. these dangers that we didn't think about before. Yeah. And this whole helicopter parenting, making sure. And French's point is mm. this. It, we like to talk about social media. We like to talk about school pressures. We like to talk about culture when mm. we say, why are kids stressed out? I don't know. David French says, hey, you're the parents. You might be the problem. <laughs> you might be the ones doing and it. And I think he's right. Yeah, and that right, is Brian. so hard to internalize. But I, I, I think wow. we as parents can make a change here. Wow. I Yeah. And, and, and probably not just we can make a change. We have to make a change. Mm. And so I don't know what that looks like. Like if it goes against your instinct to let your kid roam around the neighborhood because of fear – maybe where can you like let the quote unquote leash out a little bit right like what are I know even with Kevin he's a more sort of like yeah let them be free let them be boys let yes Eli wants to ride his bike up to wherever let him go do it and so he helps me sort of like okay I'll, I'll let it go for a little bit I'll let go for a little bit but I think that that statement right there about we think we're keeping them safe, but then they're on their phones. And that has turned out to be so damaging. That right there is like the money quote that we all need to mm-hmm. really think about. So I think as parents and you and I, we're, we're saying this to ourselves. Yeah. But the beauty of having a microphone is we can say it to other people as yep. well. Maybe take some stock. Look in the mirror and yeah. ask yourself, what am I doing that could be imparting anxiety, fears, lack of joy in my kids and yep. consider the changes that can be made? Easter's coming, Aubrey. I'm sure you're aware of that. What, Getting ready for it. What What do you either, as a parent or a pastor, whatever, what What excites you about Easter? What do you love about Easter? Man, I love, um, this is going to sound not very spiritual, but I just love gathering with family and like doing the mm. egg hunts and getting kind of dressed up for Easter morning. And you may, I don't know, just making it like a special time together. I love that about Easter. And I do feel like at church, we kind of like, you know, pull out all the, what, what's that phrase? Like pull out all the, pull the stops. stops and do like yep. the best service ever. So I love an Easter morning service too. I think that's really fun. 
It is. I mean, well, there is just that energy of Easter morning. People who haven't been to church or don't normally go to church, they come. So there's that energy. But I always love after church, you know, the brunch or the hanging out with family or doing whatever else. And it always feels like the beginning of spring. Yeah. I'm sure here it will be 42 degrees and raining. It'll be snowing, right? I know. I know. But you hope for, hopefully, uh, it, it, has that springtime feel. So Easter is coming and we hope that you are celebrating it and giving it the, the, the thought that it needs. But really the question that Easter presents to us is what's the big deal about the resurrection? Mm. Like why does it actually matter? And Tim Keller, he's a pastor and author, somebody we quote on here often. He wrote this on Twitter. Uh, kind of reflecting upon the empty tomb. He wrote, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or mm. not he rose from the dead. The Apostle Paul Aubrey tells us, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then we are to be pitied. We are fools for believing in what we do. Yeah. Uh, Talk to us about the the foundational element that that really everything about our faith does rise and fall on whether or not the tomb was empty that first Easter morning. You know, I've heard, I, I think it was actually Keller say this, that anything that we ascribe power to It's because it has the power of death. And he talks about Mm. like cancer. The reason why cancer feels so powerful and scary is because it can kill us. You think about something like um, the sun feels powerful and scary because if you get too close to it, it can kill you. Like, so, so he talks about, okay, like the most powerful force in the world is that of death. And so, you know, drawing on that, the fact that we worship a God who overcame death should move us to like awe and worship and even like fear in that holy way of like, whoa, the fact that you can overcome the most powerful thing that exists on this planet, the most powerful force ever, then you are God, period. And so I think this goes back to like, yes, if if God can overcome the grave, if God can raise from the dead, then that means he's God. Like if Jesus can do that, that means Jesus is God. And therefore, as like supreme being over all who has the power to conquer the grave, the only thing we can do, I think about like Abraham, when God called his name, the only thing we can do is like fall to the ground in worship because there's no one else more powerful. And at the yeah. end of the day, Brian, you know, we we do, we bank our lives on this, especially like those of us who are not especially, but for those of us who are in full-time ministry or we're like we talk about Jesus a lot on the radio, like we're like, quote unquote, career Christian. <laughs> we're banking <laughs> our lives on the resurrection, our careers on the resurrection. And if it's not true, we are to be a laughing stock. like we've wasted our whole lives. But if the story, the good news of the gospel is true, then my goodness, why wouldn't you believe Jesus and everything that he said yeah. and did? Yeah. So let's let's go backwards a little bit here. The event happened over 2000 years ago. Yeah. Uh, so uh, how do we know it actually happened? Yeah. Why do we believe that it actually happened to ask a different way? What's the, where's the evidence? Mm-hmm. Can't you know, this just be a made up story? And therefore yeah. it, it doesn't actually matter. Where, where do you go? And then I've got some thoughts, but yeah. where do you go for 
so for think, certainty in this. I think for me, where I tend to go for certainty is a few places. I'd always in the Bible. Mm-hmm. I I really it is very hard for me to believe that a group of Jesus's followers would follow him to the point of their own death unless mm. they'd seen the resurrection, because I just don't think you would die for. I don't think I would die for a conspiracy. I don't think I would die for something I'm not totally sure about. And I don't think I would be willing to be martyred for like someone I didn't love and know was was God. I just wouldn't mm. like. And, and so there's that evidence. The lives of the apostles who actually were killed, martyred, crucified, beheaded, etc., for Jesus, for this message. Then I think we see the transformation. Like, for instance, we see we see Stephen be martyred. Paul is there, one of the martyring people. Paul witnesses Stephen's conversation with God in mm-hmm. heaven. And then later, Paul is transformed by God himself on the road. We see Paul, this murderer of Christians, move to being this, like, passionate person preaching the resurrection of Jesus everywhere he went. So I think that's another evidence, like that life change in the Apostle Paul. And then, of course, that there are, you know, when the Bible was written or when the Bible was transcribed, there were still people alive that did bear witness to the resurrection. I think about like um, Luke interviewing Mary and she's talking about her mag- the Magnificat in Luke chapter two. And she's an older woman now, but she's reflecting on Jesus's death mm. and resurrection. And so there are just things like that. There were eyewitnesses that we can say, OK, again, if they're still later uh, willing to stake their whole life and their whole faith on the resurrection of Jesus, then those are reliable witnesses for me. That's right. What that's about right. you, Brian? Uh, no, that's it for me. Yeah. For yeah. me, it is uh, the very fact that the earliest church, and there's history outside of the Bible of this, mm-hmm. that the earliest church, beginning with the disciples, like you said, Stephen, and so on and so forth, into the first, second, third century, the the very fact that they were willing to uh, give their lives up yeah. in yeah. brutal ways, yeah. in brutal ways, that those first, go back all the way to the very first followers of Jesus, they would have known definitively whether Jesus rose or not. And so when you're about to get nailed to a cross, burned at the stake, thrown off the temple, whatever else it might be, and you're going, "Ah, do I still want to hold on to that lie? Right. Do I still want to hold on to this whole scam? Right. Nobody in their right mind would do that. And yet 11 of the 12 disciples were martyred. And just if you think the 12th had it lucky, John, they tried to kill him. They put him in burning oil and then put him out to the island of Patmos. And then you've got Stephen and the others. There's no way this would have hidden. And think about about when your kids try to lie to you. How long does it take for just a couple of your kids to like lose the lie? Yeah. I mean, they don't hold on to it really quickly. I also think there's something that's really compelling to me. And it's the the testimony of the women who saw the empty tomb mm-hmm. because again the fact that that's even in scripture like women's testimony in that day and age was not held high and lofty so the fact that the bible was like look even these women saw like even the writers of the bible are banking on that as well mm-hmm. that testimony mm-hmm. i think that's another piece of evidence we have so I uh, I wanted to bring this up today because as we go into the Easter week, you can have confidence. There you go. You can uh, celebrate the empty tomb and not go, was it? Was it? But right. no, it was empty. It is yeah. empty. It will yeah. always be empty. Amen. And for that, we can worship. Amen. Brian, uh, for the past month or so, we've been partnering with SOS International, this incredible ministry that is on the ground all around the world 
rescuing women and girls from situations of Mm -hmm. human trafficking. And we're coming up to like just the end of the line of our fundraising goals. We are so, so close because of your generosity, but we would love to invite you right now to stop whatever it is you're doing. Hit pause on the radio. uh, Stop your cooking for just a minute. If you're driving, maybe don't stop and cause a car wreck, but we want you to go online to 1160hope.com. Click on that SOS international banner at the top of the screen and give a gift today. Everything that you give goes to uh, rescuing and rehabilitating women and girls and changing generations, changing situations for the sake of the gospel. This is an awesome ministry, SOS International. Again, go to 1160hope.com to give today. Um, Brian, I was reading an article by Paul David Tripp, somebody that we've talked about on the show before, mm-hmm. about regrets. And I think regrets are one of those things. I don't know that I've ever really even preached a sermon on regrets, but I know regrets are something that are terrible to live with. Like Mm. they are just one of those terrible, terrible things to have to carry again and again and again, like over seasons of life with you. But Paul David Tripp has had this series about regret over at his website, paultripp.com. And he says that there are actually some biblical approaches when dealing with remote remorse from our regrets. Mm. And he specifically is talking about remorse from previous decisions, uh, words, or actions. Now, before we dive into that, I, I don't want to ask you, like, don't open up your soul and your heart for us. But <laughs> is there a regret that you've lived with and you had to do something about or like a change you had to make because, you, you know, you've regretted it? You know, the first thing that came to my mind when you asked me this, and I don't know that I'm getting it, like it's not really a regret of action. And if anything, it's a regret of inaction. Mm. Um, I think I've got regrets that I've lost touch with some of my really good friends from yeah. – particularly from college. Okay. We always talk about let's get together, let's get together, yeah. let's get together. And a lot of especially men do this, right? Like, And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, it's been two years, three years. And you're like, right. oh, I, I wish we hung out. Like what the first – that was – kind of surprised when you uh, you kind of said, hey, I'm going to ask you this question. What yeah. kind of regrets? It was the first thing that came to mind. And that kind of surprised me a little bit. Like, oh, I wish I could go back in time and we could get a little more structured and be like, yeah. we're going to see each other every yeah. couple months. We're going to do kind of love those guys to death. They yeah. love me. Like there's been no issues. It's just we live in different areas and yeah. life becomes life. And so, uh, yeah, I think that's a little bit of regret. How about you? Tell me your deepest, darkest I mean, sin and all the regret it causes. <laughs> it is funny you mentioned that. I have a roommate from college that was like one of my best friends and we have not talked or seen each other in like probably 20 15 20 years and like we're fine like we'll message each other on facebook text each other every once in a while but we are no longer consistent people in each other's lives and i don't think anything happened just sort of seasons of life's changed and Mm -hmm. that is she was actually going to come in town in a couple weekends and i was so excited to get to spend some time with her but she ended up changing her plans so now i can't but i would i'm with you there are some friends i have from even high school that i wish Mm -hmm. we could just go back and like I don't know, like have a laugh and remember how much we love each other. And but, but I, I you think know. you just lose. I, I think you I think lose perspective, right? You like going, 
oh wait no i i need these people in my life who have yeah. always known me who are this or that yeah. it's uh, we we as americans especially are so forward looking where it's always about where am i heading mm. what's the future what am i doing That's and so, so true. for a lot of us our friends are only the people right around us in that moment yeah when in reality those that we might have the deepest roots with might yeah. be living in a whole other place and doing this and all of a sudden one night you're like i miss that person uh-huh. i want to see that person especially yeah. you and me neither of us you know your husband has it a little differently neither you nor i grew up around here right and so there's real finality to like these were my new jersey friends yeah that's so true these were my wheaton friends mm-hmm. at college these are my post-college friends mm-hmm. and very different and, and you end up going i miss the new jersey friends yeah. i miss the wheaton friends, so. friends yeah there, you go. there yep. you go okay so that's i mean that's not a good one but that's an example of regret so here's Here's what uh, Paul David Tripp says. He says they've examined three biblical approaches, again, when dealing with remorse from regret. He says, one, we can enjoy the freedom of confession. Two, we can embrace the gift of forgiveness. And three, we can rest in God's timing. He says, these are all actions that you can take today, tomorrow, and for every day that you experience regret. Okay, so meaning like it's not too late, basically. You can confess to God, you can embrace forgiveness, and you can move forward in God's timing, rest in God's timing. But then he says, but what about a strategy for spiritual growth so that you have fewer regrets and don't make Mm. the same mistakes repeatedly? So this is bigger than just losing touch with friends. This is like sin regrets, generational sins, things like that. He says this, as you reflect on your past, meditate on the sweet promise of hope found in 1 John 1, 8 through 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so here's what Paul says. Notice that when you come to God with humble and honest confession, he not only promises to forgive you, but also to change you. And I think Mm. that's such a powerful fact. So he says, yes, mourn the fact that you um, didn't pay parent well, more in the fact that your co- your career controlled your life, more in the fact that you didn't study scripture as much as you should have when you were a child, the mourn over your selfishness, mourn over those things, but then commit to finding specific ways that you can give and serve and give that to God and ask for forgiveness and be changed. And he says, yeah. our God is the author of new seasons. He's the giver of new seeds, new roots, and new fruit. He causes fruits and flowers to grow where weeds and thorns once were. Isn't that an encouraging word for all That's of us That's really who have good. Regrets? I think it's it's a reminder because what you're talking about more, you and I talk about regrets of inaction, yeah. but also the regrets of action, right? Sins we've committed, things yeah. we've done. Yeah. We have to remember that God is is at work in our lives, that, mm-hmm. that just because I am here at this moment doesn't mean that I'm in, in you know, uh, in concrete. I can't move. Yeah. Uh, but that God is a God of transformation. His Holy mm-hmm. Spirit is at work uh, in our regret, through our regret. We can learn and move on. There's forgiveness and cleansing. I think yeah. once we lose sight of the fact that God is is a God of transformation and redemption, then regret can become overwhelming and that yeah. just be- to begins to define us. And I think that's what Tripp's getting at here. That doesn't need to define us. Things, God continues to work and birth new things in our lives. Yep, yep. Such a good word for all of us. Uh, one of the questions, we'll just end with this. One of the questions that Paul David Tripp ends his article by asking is a question for us to kind of search our own souls. He says this, what are some specific new and better seeds that you can plant right here 
right now that will yield a better harvest? Then Mm. how can you ask for help from the Lord? What temptations or obstacles might get in the way? I think that's a good, just a good word for all of us. You're living with regret or shame or guilt from something in your past. Like Brian said, you're not stuck in concrete. The Lord can forgive you, change you, and you can make new decisions today. It is the end of the show, but at the end of the show, we love to do something fun to put a smile on your face or challenge you or bring you something inspiring. Anna Brian, I thought we'd have a little conversation about sarcasm. Now, here's why this Fine. came up. Here's why this. <laughs> here's why this came up in my mind. So yesterday on Twitter. Gen X, Gen Xers were trending, which is always mm. funny when Gen Xers are t- trending on Twitter because everyone inevitably, all the Gen Xers are like, finally, people are paying attention to us. You know? So true. Well, one of the things that Gen Xers are marked by, I include myself in this, I'm guessing you do for you too, but we'll see, is we tend to sort of be ironic, sarcastic, cynical children. Would you say that's true? And by children, I just mean like our generation. Would you say that's true of our generation? I think that is true. <laughs> I was were, you trying tr- to, were you trying to answer in a sarcastic sense? No, I was going to try to paint us in a better light. But I, I think we are. We've it's not got the a... only thing about us, but it's a no, thing about us. Yeah. It is. Yes. Yeah. So it's funny because, you know, obviously at church, you too, like we lead people who are younger than us. And Kevin will always come back and he'll be like, if he's in a meeting or something with like some, you know, millennials or Gen Zers, he's like, man, I am so cynical. Like this, this next generation is so like hopeful and they've got great ideas and they want to change the world and they're not really ironic or sarcastic at all and kevin's like i don't know what's wrong with me i got a dark dark soul i'm like yeah it's no we're just gen xers like we were born to be cynical and sarcastic it's i mean we're the ones who came up also with calling the younger generation snowflakes right like we're (laughs) the ones who are like hey do this and i know the older generations thought the same of us but it's true I, i think sarcasm uh, I've told you before, uh, my past co-host and I, Ian, there were some people who said to me when they listened to us, like, are, do you guys like each other? I'm like, I love Ian. And they're yeah. like, you guys sound really mean to each other at times. And I was like, constantly like, I think uh, in my mind, like, I think we're just really sarcastic. You're like if really you heard sarcastic. us off air too, but that was a good teaching point for me, A, mm. that not everybody can read sarcasm. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I do think you walk a fine line. I think if you're a sarcastic person, mm-hmm. uh, A, it could be co- a way to compensate not wanting to talk about your yep. own feelings but yep. two it is uh, there is a small leap from sarcasm to mean <laughs> there so is a small true, it is a small gap and so i know with my best friends we are bitingly sarcastic with yeah. each other and there are times where you're like "Ooh, that one kind of hurt <laughs> that like went a like, little too far that one that one kind of hurt i yeah. mean we've been, all been talking for two weeks about a comedian slapping getting slapped by an actor because of joking and sarcasm right, and this and that. Right. But, uh yeah so sarcasm can be dangerous uh-huh. but i this article you sent me over relevant they make the case that Jesus was sarcastic, Isn't that, that he was sarcastic with the Pharisees. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, he died for, for everyone, including the Pharisees. It That's wasn't right. a hatred, but sometimes yep. sarcasm is a way to help people see also what needs to be said. So I would say for sarcastic people, uh, and I think Gen X men really fall into this category the most, uh, be careful. I don't think there's, I don't yeah. think sarcasm is at all sinful. I think sarcasm yeah. can be funny. I think it can be, it can be a good teaching tool. It can be whatever else. I would just say be careful. Yep. 
I think be careful is a really good word because we do. I, I remember Kevin's mom would always say that she hated sarcasm. She felt like it was an inauthentic form of communication. And then Kevin and the kids would say some, not my kids, but like her other sibling, her other kids would say something sarcastic back to her, kind of mocking her, you know. But I, there is something to that, Brian, that it can it maybe isn't sinful, but it might go too far at times, especially if it's not Christ-like and hurts people's feelings. You might be getting into sinful territory at that point. So, okay, like you said, over at Relevant Magazine, uh, this author argues, his name is Jason Bradley, argues that Jesus used sarcasm at least three times, okay? And we'll see if we think he's correct. He quotes Jesus in Matthew 12. Here's the, here's the Matthew 12, one through three. Here's the scripture. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and wheat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But Jesus said to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry? And, uh, this, this, um, Author is saying, look, this is a pretty common response that Jesus uses when he's being con confronted. He often says, like, have you not read? And what he's arguing is that Jesus is taunting them. When Jesus asks them if they've read a scripture before, he explains to them, it's a taunt. They've read it. They just haven't completely understood or internalized it. So he says this isn't mean-spirited mockery, but it's a it's a sarcastic strategy. The public way that the Pharisees confronted Jesus is a power play intended to give them the upper hand, establish their don dominance. By taunting them with sarcasm, Jesus assures everyone present that he's not intimidated by their authority. Okay, so, and then he, this is kind of funny. He has, he has sarcasm levels. He I says that, that that sarcasm level is like uh, equitable with Gandalf from the Lord of the Rings, <laughs> which okay, I've so never seen. I don't. I don't. I'm not sure if I would have categorized that as sarcasm. But now that I hear that, I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, that. I've never thought about it. That he makes a great point there in the fact that of course they read it. Of, of course, course they, they read, read it. it. Right. But Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't say to them, "I know you've read this, but uh -huh. you're misunderstanding." He's like. Hey guys, have you even read this? Have you even read that? Yep. And they oh. that would have put them back on their heels. Like, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Of course, I read it. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I, I never know. really thought of that point. I know me neither. I thought that's that was a good one. Okay, here's another from John ten verses thirty one through thirty two. He says this. This is uh, this is from scripture. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? <laughs> so he says the, the sarcasm is, which of them are you stoning me? He says, Jesus had just claimed that he and God were one, and the smug Jews who were present picked up the rocks to stone him. It's a particularly tense moment that Jesus ramps up with a fairly brassy question. They've been looking for an opportunity to take him out, and Jesus' blasphemy just gave it to them. Christ reminds them of the many ways he already established who he is. If they want to test the veracity of his statement, there are many witnesses who will corroborate. And he says, so which good work do you plan on killing me for? It's a fairly bold sneer for someone facing down a mob. That's true. That's another one it's I hadn't true. really thought about that. That is, uh, that's really true. That's yep. really true. Okay. He says that sarcasm level is Rob Gordon, played by John Cusack from High Fidelity. Okay. Here's another one. Uh, this is the last one. Guess I need to die in Jerusalem. This is from Luke 13. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform <laughs> cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet 
would perish outside of Jerusalem. Here's what the author says. First of all, I love that Jesus calls Herod that fox. Today, we would call someone a fox because we consider them clever. That's not how Jesus meant it. Foxes were solitary, destructive, unclean. Herod ruled over the Jews and feigned solidarity with them, but he was a dangerous, poisonous man who was only looking after himself. Our Lord was not speaking kindly. And then he says, this seems like a good moment to talk about tone. When Christians speak out about other Christians or authority figures, they're often chastised. It's as if politeness is the highest Christian virtue. Interesting. But here we see Jesus summing up Herod's character with an epithet. And if you read Paul's letter, he frequently calling out people and groups. And uh, again, he says, because he called him a fox, that was Jesus using sarcasm. Yeah. So there you the go. Da- There's our justification. It's really good. Here's the danger. Yeah. Is you and I talk uh, in honesty all the time about civility and the need yeah. of it. Sarcasm can really move, not just to meanness, but to lack of civility. Well, Mm. Jesus was really – sometimes you're just a jerk, right? And some of you who are like, I'm sarcastic, sometimes you're just a jerk. Don't be a jerk. At times, like, be like, how is this going to be read? How is – you know, Mm -hmm. am I civil when I need to be civil? Mm -hmm. What does – am am I being sarcastic with the right people? I don't think this is licensed to go, Jesus was was sarcastic a couple times, so I'm going to be it with everybody. Like, sometimes just – there, we still mean what we say about the need for civility, yeah. the need for good dialogue. Like mm. these go hand in hand. Yeah. Yep. I think that's a good word for all of us. And again, it's Jesus. Jesus, who was without sin, is allowed to do what he wants. We are not in the same category. So, All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.